My name is Stacy Hill. There are a number of you who may not know me because it's been a long time since I have been up here. I've been with Journey since the beginning, and um, it's really a huge part of my family, really extended family here. If you're new to Journey, I really encourage you to take the time to get to know the community here. Um, lots of good music, lots of good preaching, pretty much anywhere in the city of Chattanooga, but I think you'll rarely find a family um, and such amazing people as you do here at Journey. So I just encourage you to get connected here. Um, I am a teacher during the week. I teach high school math. Um, So, yes, I am a little bit crazy for choosing to teach teenagers math. Um, And I have two young kids, um, the one screaming, yay, and Mark is mine. Um, He only pretends to like Mark from a distance. Um, he gets up close and he gets a little intimidated. Um, so this morning I'm going to be, um, working through the first chapter of Matthew. And so I am going to try to get through it with all these incredibly difficult names. Matthew one, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azar, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and Mary, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. God, we come to you just asking for grace and open hearts this morning. I pray that my words would be things that you really want spoken today. Ask that we would have, as Steve said earlier, a fire ignited in us because of the word of the Lord and what you have spoken. So I pray your grace, your wisdom, your love, and your compassion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you spend any time with me or if you've seen me carrying Shiloh around, you probably know I love superheroes because if you look at her uh, carrier, I have a Batman cover for her. Um, So I absolutely love superheroes. You may know one that's the wealthiest playboy known as America's wealthiest playboy and philanthropist. At the age of eight, he witnessed his parents' murder on the way home from the theater, and he decided soon thereafter he would avenge his parents' deaths and rid the city of the evil that instigated them. He submitted himself to intense physical and intellectual training and began fighting street crime. He showed mechanical genius at a young age. By 21, he assumed the mantle of his father's defense corporation and turned it into a multi-million dollar industry. Then, suffering a fatal blow to his heart, he built electrical body armor equipped with heavy-duty weapons to escape his haptor. Maybe you know the young Russian orphaned girl rescued by a man named Ivan. She grew as a spy in the KGB, but eventually she defected and joined the Avengers, the same group she once fought against. It's not real hard to guess that I'm talking about Batman, Iron Man, or the Black Widow if you know anything about superheroes. And chances are, if you do, you know their backstories. You can guess who I'm talking about just because you're interested in them and you know their backstories and who they are. And who they are is a result of where they've come from. And oftentimes, it's their backstories that endear endear us to them because their backstories are often ones of overcoming some type of hardship or strain, even in their past or currently as they are fighting crime or evil momentarily. Isn't it interesting that we could identify these superheroes by their backstories, but probably most of us couldn't name anybody other than Abraham and David and maybe Joseph and Mary from the history of Jesus? We come to the genealogies and we skip right over them or trudgingly read through them thinking they're not important, or there's not really anything that we can glean from reading the genealogy. And you're probably thinking, gosh, you really are crazy. Even though you're a math teacher, you're really crazy because you're about to teach from a genealogy. But I promise it's going to be really good because there's a lot of hidden gems here that we just don't see. And God promises us that all scripture is useful for teaching. So I hope today you get a little taste of that from the genealogy. There's so much going on here that I really don't have time to cover at all. Um, There are several different types of individuals that we can identify from the genealogy, and I've divided them into four groups. You could divide them numerous ways. These are just ways that I've chosen to divide them for today. And um, 
The first group I call the hidden heroes. These are the guys that are in the genealogy and who did some really amazing things, but we really never talk about them. One would be Asaph. It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He took away the altars, broke down the pillars, and he commanded Judah to seek the Lord. He commanded the whole nation to seek the Lord. I think the next three are really interesting, and they're very similar. All three of them, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, and Jotham, all did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But yet all three of them failed to remove the high places dedicated to worshiping other gods. And what you find as you read through, even though these guys, each section are in in, um, genealogical order, they're not in order with the next group. And so what you'll find is when they failed to break down all the altars, the good kings were often followed by bad kings. Probably one of my favorite in this list, and you probably know the name, is Hezekiah. But you might not know how renowned he actually was. Um, Second Kings says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He held fast to the Lord. I think that is so cool to think about Hezekiah because even though there's quite a bit about him in the Old Testament, most of us may just recognize the name. Most of us, if we're thinking about kings, are going to go and talk about King David. But here it says that there was none like him after him, nor before him. That means that even David didn't have the same type of renown that Hezekiah did in his searching and following the Lord. And I think that's just a really neat um, piece of information about Hezekiah. Another guy in the Old Testament and in this genealogy is a guy named Josiah. If you know about Josiah, you might know he was perhaps one of the youngest kings in Israelite history. Um, He became king when he was only eight years old. How many of you have kids? How many of you want your eight-year-olds ruling a kingdom? (laughs) Probably not very many, but he became king when he was eight. And then it says, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. In his 18th year, he sent some people to the temple to kind of clean it all out. And as they were cleaning out the temple, they found the book of the law. They found the book of the law, and they brought it to this young 26-year-old. Maybe a 26-year-old's a little better than an 18-year-old by the time they're ruling, but I still don't know that I could have ruled at 26. And most of you are looking at your college-age kids thinking that they're probably not ready to rule either. But at 26 years old, he found the book of the law, read through it, and he repented. And he repented not only for himself, but for the whole nation. He reinstated Passover And as a result, God allowed him peace in his reign. These are some of the hidden heroes that we see in Jesus' genealogy. But we also have a lot of corrupt kings, quite a few of them. It almost seems when you're reading through and finding out about the people that there are more corrupt kings than there are heroes. Rehoboam had 18 wives and 60 concubines, and he didn't set his heart on following the Lord. Jehoram 
also uh, reigned very poorly. He killed all his brothers. We got several here who have lots of kids. Anybody want their older brother or sister reigning? I don't have any brothers or sisters, so I can't really say to that. But I probably would be afraid if one of them took the throne and I knew that it was possible that they would kill me because they wanted to be able to hold power. The next two I can't fathom. Ahaz and Manasseh, both of them didn't just do evil inside of the Lord. Both of them offered their sons on the altar as burning sacrifices to other gods. I can barely watch my kids get shots, let alone think about the fact that I would burn them on an altar to a god. Amos walked and served idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And last, but certainly not least, was Jeconiah. It says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. Can you imagine being discarded by God? In verse 30 of Jeremiah, it says, Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule in Judah anymore. So here we have a king who has been so unfaithful and so evil that God just takes him off like a ring and tosses him aside. Even a signet ring saying, even if you were actually an absolutely wonderful, beautiful man, I would just toss you aside because that's how worthless you've been as a king. And all of these guys are part of the genealogy in which Jesus came from. You're going to know these next guys for sure. And it's really amazing once you dig in to think about these reprehensible yet revered heroes. We all know Abraham. You probably know Judah and you even know David. Abraham is perhaps the most revered theological figure in the entire world. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all trace their lineage back to Abraham. He descended from Shem, one of Noah's sons. And Shem lived so long that he actually was alive when Abraham walked the earth. So remember, Noah was one of the guys that lived through the flood. Actually, he was the main guy that lived through the flood. And he had three sons. Shem is his oldest son. And so when Abraham is born he actually gets to meet his great, 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 great grandfather because Shem was about 600 years old when he died. And so Abraham heard the stories of the flood very likely straight from the mouth of one of the guys that was on the boat. Did you know that? I didn't know that before I started, and I just thought, how cool is that? Because I remember listening to stories from my grandmother telling me stories, from my aunts telling me stories, and my uncle, who's still alive, telling me stories about his time in Vietnam. And I just think, what a rich heritage 
that I have. And here Abraham is getting to listen to his own ancestor talk about surviving the flood and how God rescued them and what God did during that time. But aside from knowing that Abraham was a descendant of Shem, we know next to nothing about him in his life prior to God calling him. And in in Genesis 12, God just kind of shows up and he calls him and he says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, it means ethne, ethnic groups, every single ethnic group on earth will be blessed through you. So this guy that we really don't know anything about up until this point gets chosen by God to start a nation. You probably know the story of Abraham and the doubt of God's promise because God promised that Abraham would have a son and he was 75 years old and so was his wife Sarah or about there when he was told that he would have a son and both of them were thinking, gosh, we're old. There's no way we're going to have kids. And Sarah can't get pregnant. And so Abraham had a moment of doubting and he took took Sarah's suggestion and he goes and he sleeps with Hagar and they had Ishmael. Did you also know that before that, he pretty much handed his wife over to another man in order to save his own life? Wives, how would you feel about that? See, those are the things that we don't look at, even in the men that we revere in the Old Testament. God kind of got Pharaoh back because not long after Abraham handed Sarah over, there was a plague in Egypt and... Pharaoh kind of figured out that what Abraham had done. So he gave Sarah back to Abraham. He also let Abraham leave Egypt with cattle, riches, all kinds of people that traveled out of Egypt with him. So this is how the man who started the nation began with the ability to sustain them by handing his wife over. You, you've probably heard of Judah, but you not, might not connect Judah's story quite so well. Judah was Joseph's older brother. You know, Joseph, the one that was sold into slavery. Guess whose idea it was to sell him into slavery? It was Judah's. At least it was better than killing him, right? Because that's exactly what they would plan to do was kill Joseph instead. And Judah's like, hmm, dead brother's not worth very much, but we could sell him, get some money for him. So they decided to sell him into slavery. What you might not know is Judah is also the same man who slept with his daughter-in-law. And they had twins. And this is a guy that's in the genealogy of Jesus. He slept with her because he thought she was a prostitute. That makes it so much better. Um, But at the end of the day, God gives a prophecy and it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That's in Genesis 49. You probably all know David. Even if you're not part of the church for very long, you've at least heard the story of David and Goliath, right? 
He was this little guy. He was the youngest of his family. And yet here comes God breaking all cultural customs. And he says, I want that one, the young one, the smallest one, the one that nobody thinks should be king. And I want him. He stood fearlessly before Goliath and proclaimed the prominence of God. Yet his failure as a father caused a civil war. His disobedience as a king caused an epidemic that caused the lives of over 70,000 Israelites in just three days. And of course, we all know of his other failure. When as a king, he stayed home from battle and decided to take one of his mighty women's wives for himself, got her pregnant, and then after failing to cover it up, just had her husband killed. David, however, was also known as a man after God's own heart. God also promised David that he would establish his throne forever, saying, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Think about that type of guys that God has in the genealogy of Jesus. But wait, did you catch that there were also five women listed? I'm going to talk about four of them, the fifth one being Mary. But you might need to know a little bit more about Israelite Israelite culture and customs to know how astonishing it is for there to be four women listed in this genealogy. For us, it would be no big deal. Women today hold much more social status, still not great, but much more social status than they did in the time of um, Israelite history. So it would have been a shock for the Jews, and that's who Matthew was writing to, was Jews. It would have been a shock to read this genealogy and realize that there were women included in this genealogy. Their role in society had actually declined based on the role that they held in Old Testament times. Um, They were not allowed to divorce for any reason. It could have just been they burnt dinner. Um, They didn't have equal weight of testimony in the courts, and they weren't even allowed equal worship in the temple. So their status had really declined by the time the first century rolled around, and they were seen very degraded and lower than slaves, um, probably due to the Greek influence, more than likely. Um, But still, it would have been insane to see the women at this time. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are these four women here in this genealogy? The first is Tamar. You know, I just talked about Judah, and I said that he slept with his daughter-in-law, who had disguised herself as a prostitute. Well, that's Tamar. Tamar had been overlooked because her first evil evil husband had been killed. The second brother that was supposed to fill his duty didn't, so he was killed. And so Judah promised to give her his third son, but he really didn't intend to because he thought probably that Tamar was cursed or something, and he was afraid to give 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 her his son. So he failed in his duty. Not only did she sleep with her father-in-law, she was also a Canaanite who would have been an outsider in Jewish culture at the time. Rahab. Most of us have probably heard of Rahab, but maybe not. 
Rahab is this really interesting woman. She was a prostitute in Jericho. You remember the story about the Israelites marching around Jericho? They marched, blew their trumpets, marched, blew their trumpets. That's what's happening here in this story. And despite her occupation, I have to think that this was one really strong and courageous woman. Joshua sent two spies, and of all the places to hide, they pick Rahab's apartment, which is in the wall of the city, which you already know collapses, right? Like you know that this wall's about to fall down. But Rahab helped the spies hide. She lied to the king's men who came to look for them. And ultimately, she acknowledged that God is God and fell in step with his plans. I mentioned earlier when I read the genealogy that there was a man named Salmon whose wife was Rahab. There's some speculation. There's no no, no knowledge of this at all, but there's some speculation that Salmon was one of the spies that Rahab hid. I think that that's just a cool thought, whether true or not. It's just a really cool thought that a man who she helped survive ended up being a man that she would marry, and then together they would father Boaz. We also know Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite who had married into the Hebrew family. Both the husband, her mother, her husband and her mother-in-law's husband and other son had all been killed. And so Naomi decides to go back and Ruth, instead of returning to her family, pledges her allegiance to Naomi and returns to the Israelite family with Naomi. But the Moabites were cursed according to Deuteronomy 23.3 and said that they would have no part in the kingdom of Israel. But... Ruth clung to the faith of her mother-in-law, submitted herself to the mercy of Boaz, and was the grandmother of King David. I've already mentioned the wife of Uriah, one of David's best friends. And David went and stole his wife. She's not even mentioned in the story, probably to point out who's really at fault by naming Uriah's wife. And Uriah was a Hittite, so it's very likely that Bathsheba was a Hittite as well, which meant that she was a Gentile. David got her pregnant, tried to cover it up, and when that failed, he, of course, had Uriah killed. And most commentators, when they look at this, they try to say that Bathsheba is complicit in David's sin. But it's more likely that he abused his power. As a result, Bathsheba lost both her husband and a son because the baby boy that she was pregnant with by David died soon after birth. At this point, you're probably going, gosh, you're just giving us a history lesson. And I think it happens to be a pretty interesting history lesson if you just take what's happening at face value and we look at the people themselves. But there's so much more going on here. Most people, when they teach about the genealogy, they say that it demonstrates that there are hidden heroes today. People who are going about their everyday lives, honoring God and getting very little credit for it. There are people in our family heritage that we would really rather not admit are there. 
We know the story's true, though, because we put all of these ugly things in our history. And while there's always consequences to our sin, God doesn't waste anything when we fully surrender to him. Jesus provides a way for the outcasts. He raises up the status of the overlooked and undervalued. And Matthew shows us that our painful pasts can still provide a pathway for God to fulfill his promises. In essence, Jesus came to save you and me. That's what most commentators say. That's what most people, when they preach on the genealogy, talk about. And that's where they end. And while I think it's true that we can take and extrapolate some of that information from these stories, and it's really rich in history, there's really so much more going on here that most of us overlook for whatever reason. I actually did quite a bit of research, and, and the women struck me, I guess, maybe because I am a woman. It just stuck out to me more, and I just started reading. And every time I read, I just got dismayed. Every time I listened to somebody preach, it would just break my heart. Because when they talk about it, they talk about these four women. We've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And they talk about them, and they say, these four women are in there because they were full of sin, and they needed to be put into the line of the king because we needed to show God's graciousness and mercy for people who were full of sin, even sexual sin. And gosh, if, I, if what I haven't showed you doesn't show that that can't be the case, I mean, if you just look at just the last three lives that I talked about, in Abraham, Judah, and David, you would know that there's no need to add women to prove God's faithfulness and grace. Because it's already there just in the men who were already in the line of the king. So there's no reason to add the women. Judah himself, at the end of Genesis 38, claims Tamar as more righteous than himself. Hebrews puts Rahab in what we call the hall of faith because of the faith that she had in the Lord God who would rescue Israel and conquer Jericho. And Ruth even has a whole book of the Bible named after her. And God promised Bathsheba that the line of David would come from a man that descended from her. So that can't be why these women are added. So what's really going on here? Why are these four women added to the gospel and the genealogy of Jesus Christ? And I think there are two significant truths that are happening here. First of all, I think just a a main one is Jesus is simply reestablishing the equality of women. I think that he's speaking to who they are, of their value. And Matthew even brings this out through his whole gospel as he shows women time after time. And he at the end, or towards the end, guess who are the first people to witness the resurrection? Women. Guess who are the first ones to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive? Women. So I think Matthew is starting there with breaking this cultural norm that women are less than human. Secondly, and I love this, I think Matthew is re-emphasizing the inclusion of Gentiles. Those that are deemed unworthy outcasts into the covenant of God. Jews should have already known this. Like they had to have known because when Abraham received his blessing. It said that you will be a blessing to all peoples of the earth. 
not just the Jews. But for some reason, they just forgot that in their cultural heritage. They forgot that that was an original promise. But see, if only men had been listed, you couldn't have included the Gentiles. Because what did you have to be in order to be king of Israel? You had to descend from the line of David. To be a part of the Messiah, to be in the line of the Messiah, you had to be from the line of David. So there's no way that they could have included a man that was a Gentile because it would have broken the line of David as a Gentile. So he had to include women to show that the salvation that Jesus would bring wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for the entire world. God is transcending ethnic, racial, social, gender, and culture barriers to show his love and grace are for all. And Matthew follows this theme from the genealogy in chapter 1 all the way to the very end in chapter 28 when he gives the Great Commission. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. But he's planting that seed, especially for the Jews, here in the genealogy. Isn't that amazing how God works? How the littlest thing that we overlook because we simply don't understand what's happening most of the time and in something that was 2,000 years ago, God is using to ignite a fire and an understanding in the lives of the first century Jews. And really, this gets me excited. And as good as all of this is, it's not even what I think is the best part about what's happening in the genealogy. Because really, this genealogy isn't about... The people listed, it's not about the people that Jesus came and died for, the types of people that Jesus came and died for. All of that is true. It's absolutely true and very important for those of us who know that Jesus came to save us. But you see, none of that matters. It doesn't matter who he came to save. If Jesus isn't the man he said he was, and if he didn't do what he said he was going to do, then it doesn't matter who he came to save. I have uh, two kids. And if you have kids, you know naming your kid is pretty important. Um, When I knew Keegan was coming, I had actually picked out a girl name. And then three weeks before his birth, I get the official match, and I'm like, uh... I have three weeks to choose a name. And so, you know, I'm just racking my brain. I'm going through all the baby name books, and I'm, I'm just thinking about it and praying about it. And you know, ma- names have always been meaningful to me. And, and so I'm just thinking, gosh, I really want to pick a name that describes the man that I want him to be. And at the end of Matthew 1, we have two names. And that's where Matthew is going. The genealogies limit more and more the human origin of the Messiah and the seed of the woman. Or as the seed of the woman, the Messiah had to come out of humanity. As the seed of Abraham, the Messiah had to come from the nation of Israel. As the seed of Judah, he had to be the tribe of Judah. And as the seed of David, he had to be of the family of David. And so what Matthew is doing is he's walking us through all of these seeds and culminating it in the name of Jesus. It's interesting as you read the history and what's going on 
By the time that Jesus comes into the world, there had been a 400-year gap of not hearing from God. And prior to that, there had been two lines that had dominated from the 12 tribes of Israel. Two were left, the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And so as, my, as Matthew is putting his genealogy together, he's taking for us both tribes and he's going to intertwine them together in an absolutely beautiful way. If you were going to be king in the northern tribe of Israel, you had to receive divine appointment. God had to appoint you to be king. If you were going to be king in the southern tribe of Judah, you had to be descended from the tribe of David, or tribe of Judah, line of David. So Matthew starts by connecting Jesus to David, and in line with 2 Samuel 7, 12, 6, 12 through 16, Matthew immediately makes the claim that Jesus is royalty. And not just royalty, but royalty that will rule forever. And then he goes back even further and connects him with Abraham, the father of the Hebrews. As we've already seen, Abraham is going to be the one who, through whom all nations are blessed. And in Jesus, Genesis 22, what you will know is that as Abraham is attempting to sacrifice Isaac, because he believes that that's what God has told him to do, God pulls him back from that sacrifice and says, No, I will provide another, but your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. But do you remember Jeconiah, one of those bad kings that I talked about earlier, the corrupt ones? He was the one that was cut off and said that none of his descendants would rule anymore. Well, but he's in the genealogy, right? So what's going on here? If you look at this and the fact that Joseph came from Jeconiah, you would know that Joseph has no right to ascend the throne because he's from the line of Jeconiah, but he's still from the line of David. And if you pair this with the genealogy from Mary, you'll also find that Mary actually also traces her line back to David, but instead of tracing it through Solomon, which is Jeconiah and Joseph, she traces it through Nathan, David's other son by Bathsheba. And so we actually have both the appointment, divine appointment of Israel and the line of Judah culminating together in Christ and the genealogies. Because from the line of David, we have Mary and Joseph both being descended from the line of David, but he's emphasizing the virgin birth. Isaiah 7 says that the the Messiah will be born of a virgin. And so he's emphasizing by saying that the Messiah cannot come from Joseph because that would be a biological son. And so he's saying it can't be. If this guy is the Messiah, he can't actually be a son of Joseph. But he is from that line. And so if you accepted that he may have been the adopted son and not a biological son, he gets the line that way. But he also gets the line from Mary, both biologically and by divine appointment. I think it's also interesting that we see here that the split that had happened in the tribes of Judah are actually reunited in this appointment of the king of Judah and the divine appointment for the kingdom of Israel, and that God is really working toward unity. If we consider Luke's genealogy further, we see that Jesus' lineage is traced all the way back to Adam, And we get an additional layer to the story. 
Jesus is described as the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam gives Jesus his humanity. And his humanity is connected to all humankind. The son of God gives Jesus his divinity. Arnold Frittenbaum describes it like this. Jesus, the son of David, is king. Jesus, the son of Abraham, is a Jew. Jesus, the son of Adam, is a man. And Jesus, the son of God, is God. You see, Jesus did come to save the unknown, the outcast, and the sinners. We see that God always fulfills his promises, even if we don't understand his timetable. And he fulfills those promises not because of our righteousness, but in spite of our sinfulness. But ultimately, what we see here is the one that loves sinners, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, known and unknown, the hero and the outcast. He's also the same one, the only one who has both the ability and the authority to save them. And he's the same one writing our stories. I loved earlier when Steve was given his testimony. He said that the hope we have is in Jesus Christ who offers us eternal life. And that's the Christmas story. The hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. Jesus the one who saves, Emmanuel, God with, with us. And he can write our stories. Jesus, we thank you that your word is true and powerful. We thank you that no matter where we've come from, where we're going, who we are, what we've done. And that you really are the one true king, the Jesus who saves. God with us. Thank you so much that you are the one that has written the story of history, that you are the one who has brought the climax of history to the birth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, that we get to spend the next few weeks just thinking about Advent and the beginning. I pray that you would give us the courage to let you write our stories. That you would allow us to step out and just follow the words that you've penned for us. For you have known us before we were born, and you have given us a life that we could not even imagine. Jesus, thank you for your word that is so intricately written that we know that you are the God who has the ability and authority to save and that you walk with us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.